Also, it brings up the cliche that strategy works until it doesn't. <laughs> so, oh yeah, they're all you know picking up pennies in front of you know on the train track type of thing. Oh man, it's not. I can't believe Donald Trump's still like the leading candidate for the Republican Party. Just shows what a crazy country the U.S. is. The Business of Betting podcast is presented by Optimo, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Since 2012, Optimo has served iGaming operators from startups to industry leaders. Today, four out of the top five U.S. operators personalize player experiences with Optimo. iGaming operators know their growth journey begins and continues with Optimo, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Visit Optimove at ICE and mention you listen to this episode to receive an Amazon gift card. What is up, everybody? I'm Jason Trost, the host of Business of Betting Podcast. I'm joined today by David Forhart Lane, who's joining us from, I believe, Chicago, right? That's right. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us, David. David has a background in finance. He was an old school Chicago trader, and we share a little bit of background about that. First of all, welcome to the podcast and introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thanks so much for having me. Super excited to be here. I'll try to give a a quick intro and then we can go deep on anything if you'd like to. You know, my background was I completely obsessed with sports betting going back to college. I certainly made it my life's mission to become a professional sports gambler. I became one. And then having gotten that stage of life, kind of got noticed by a prop trading firm called Getco through through a friend of mine who had also been a professional gambler, my co-founder now, actually. But anyways, you know, so 2004 to Getco, got involved in the high-frequency market making that was at a time when nobody else was really doing it. So we were doing crazy high percentages of the the volume in the U.S. stock market and all the various futures exchanges. So that was super exciting. Spent 15 years in that world. But now I'm back to my roots of sports betting, which is always the thing I've truly been obsessed with. And got a few things going on here. There's a few different things we do, but but one of the things we do is it's almost like a prop trading firm within the sports industry. So you're the CEO co-founder of a company called DL Trading, which does B2B as well as market makes on Sport Trade, I believe, and maybe a few other venues. Why don't you set up the process of like why you set up DL Trading, the size of it, and what you're trying to do with that company? Yeah, so the size of it, we've got about 25 people. I mean, as far as what we're trying to do, we had actually already launched a little operation in Ireland to trade on Betfair, somewhat from the standpoint of like, hey, we, we see what's out there. We love sports. We can make some money. Let's go do it. Pretty quickly, we saw with all the legalization going on in the U.S., like, hey, let's make this more than just a small thing. Let's go for it. And let's let's see this opportunity in the U.S. We think well, felt like a lot of the operators didn't necessarily have the models that they should. And when I say model, I don't just mean like the what's the probability of this team winning model, but also the whole process of how you trade and profit maximize around that model. So we started going for it. Really, the first thing we did was uh, was a partnership with Sport Trade, where we, we got in there and are offering very, very competitive prices, pregame and in-game, and just kind of, sh- you know, showcasing that for a couple of reasons. If we just, you know, show that we can, we can hang in there and deal with this anonymous customer order flow that not only promotes Sport Trade itself, but just shows off what we can do for other ventures as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you were one of the Series A investors in the sport trade. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So what was your thinking in that? Like, did you invest because you were bullish on that company specifically? Or did you do it to sort of more align your interests as a market maker? What was your thought process around that investment? 
Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of both. I mean, we knew that that deal was the type of deal we were looking for going back to our time at Getco when don't want to drone on too much about the financial industry, but we made an investment in an exchange called BATS that worked out very well because of the natural alignment of a market maker and prop trading firm. So we definitely viewed that deal as the inspiration. We were looking for a BATS, and I just really, really liked what I was hearing from Alex Kane. He seemed like the, the guy we wanted to partner with, and we, we started talking to him, and, and it was clear we really hit it off. His vision was aligned with ours. He was already looking for basically a Chicago-style prop trading firm to work with. And so there was just not a lot of barriers to overcome as far as working out a mutual vision. So you said you kind of played around, I don't know what you would call it, but you were trading the Betfair Exchange out of Ireland and you saw the American opportunity. So what's your vision for America? Like, what do you think, where do you think sports betting is going to be in 10 years? You know, I think it will, you know, the one dimension that, that people like you and me kind of go to most quickly is the whole, can we get the recreational customers to care about price? You know, I think we'll get further along in 10 years. I don't think we will ever get it to the point like the financial market where price is the dominant thing people care about. I don't think we'll get it to a point where 100% or nearly that amount uh, of customers want to be on an exchange or even want to be at a you know venue like Pinnacle or Circa that competes on price and being able to offer limits to everybody. But I think we'll get that probability a lot higher or the percentage of people a lot higher. And we see a number of ways for being part of that, again, through sport trade itself. And then just through being nimble about you know, complex products that sports books want to offer as part of their B2Bs. So that's something I often get into the debate with guests on this podcast. I had Paris from uh, Pinnacle, you know, and I was asking her why she thought Pinnacle didn't kind of take over the market because of their sort of high volume, low margin kind of approach to sports betting. So what is your, you know, if you think that that will never happen, where there's sort of a true price driven market, like I would say finance probably more so is at least. What is your end state of the sport trades, the betfairs of the world will be niche players and they'll have a nice, big, profitable niche? Or, or what's your thinking about that? Yeah, that's basically it. I think one way I frame that sometimes is when you don't pay attention to the day-to-day, you kind of get this interesting perspective. So I, I had the perspective of, of being consumed with this world 20 years ago, being consumed with it over the last few years, but not paying as much attention in between. And what I saw is, you know, I just remember betting at all these Caribbean offshores, there's a million of them. Blue Marlin, there's World Sports Exchange, Worldwide Telesports, there's all, all these different places. And then there's this one place, Pinnacle, that's, you know, competing on price, kind of no frills, we just have a great product. Go away for 15 years, all those other guys are gone, and Pinnacle survives. And you look at where Betfair is, they did not take over 100% market share. They didn't come close to it. They got a lot more than sport trade and profit have so far in the U.S. So I think for exchanges in the U.S., it's more clear that there's a lot of upside from where they are right now because they can just get to that floor that's been established by folks like Pinnacle and Betfair. The next question of like, is this niche going to become the whole deal? That one, I I, I can't competently say that the the price sensitive thing will take over everything. It, It probably won't. So one of the big things that, you know, oftentimes uh, finance is, or at least what we do in sports betting is compared to finance. And one of the big reasons that I think sports betting never catches on like finance is because the liquidity is, I don't know, how many orders of magnitude smaller than finance. You know, you can trade, what, X trillion dollars of whatever, blah, 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 that you want pretty easily. And, you know, like you might be able to trade 100K on tonight's Premier League match, for example. Like, what is your rationale for leaving finance and coming back to sports betting? Like, I don't know how fiscally successful you were in finance, and I don't know if you want to share that. But like, 
to me, if you're good, if you have alpha, and part of the reason I think sports betting doesn't get disrupted is if you are good at generating alpha, you are good at generating novel trading algorithms, your potential upside is 100,000x in finance just because the liquidity is easier to access, you know, the opportunity is a lot bigger. So what would you say to that? I'd say a couple of different things. First, to try to justify it on, on financial terms and then talking more personally. I think that besides the amount of money being transacted in financial markets is obviously so much higher. But I spent my career coming up with these models that if I was making a tenth of a cent per share traded, I was ridiculously happy from market making on the U.S. stock market. And, you know, you look at what operators make in the U.S. sports betting and it's in the seven to 10 percent range per bet. So there's a there's a multiplier going the other way as far as how much money the industry can make. You look at the projections of billions that operators are going to be making. Is there room for as many operators being as successful as, as, as all the various trading firms? Absolutely not. You know, I think we can say with confidence that there's room for a couple of them to be incredibly successful. And, and I think we just felt like we liked our chances of being one of that group, just, you know, coming from our background of the combination of, of prop trading and the sports knowledge and, you know, domain expertise and all that stuff. On the personal level, before things got legalized in the U.S., maybe it was just more clear that the gulf between what a trader can make in financial markets and sports betting markets is enormous. I guess the main thing I can say is for 15 years, I went with that and I said, yeah, financial markets aren't my favorite thing in the world, but I'm going to do them anyways. And, and now I'm just, uh, you know, I, did, I didn't want to spend my lifetime making that decision. But yeah, that's kind of my two-part response there. Do you get personally excited about creating a sport model or, you know, in a way that you didn't about a financial model? Absolutely. And I, I don't mean to say that I got zero enjoyment out of the financial markets. It was it was great. I mean, it's just fun, just you know, competing on math problem type stuff. It's just inherently kind of fun, but it's just not the same for me as sports betting. I've been a huge sports fan since 1983, and there's just nothing else I'd throw myself into with this level of dedication. Yeah, it's kind of funny you say that, though, because the longer I'm in the industry, the more dispassionate I get about sports. And I feel like in order to make models, you kind of need to be dispassionate about sports. I might have given you a different answer 24 hours ago, but I'm a, I'm a lifelong Detroit sports fan. And after that Lions game last night, my fandom had been pretty dormant, given how bad the Detroit teams have been. But I discovered last night, unfortunately, it's still there. And so that, that doesn't kill that for me. Fantastic. So how's it going with sport trade? What's are you the principal market maker? Are you one of three? Like, what does that look like on, on the sport trade side? We have been the principal market maker. We have been the only market maker for most of sport trade existence. That is changing, though. There's, a, there's another market maker who's on the platform now. So they have integrated very, very recently. So customers may not necessarily notice like a, a huge difference today. But just over time, you'll probably see more liquidity. I could ask you, how do you guys look at that? I mean, you have an exchange and a market maker, and do you look at that as, you know, hey, we, we want this to be a super open environment where market makers are just a million of them in there competing for price? Is that your ideal world, or is it more profit maximizing to kind of keep it in-house with the single market maker? I've gone round and round and round on that question, and usually I come on uh, up on the end of closed garden is kind of the way, the better way to build the ecosystem. And the, the reason is because of the zero-sum nature of sports betting. And so it's actually fairly easy to get smart money on the platform, but it's hard to get dumb, you know, retail flow money into the platform. So the hard part about building an exchange and a good ecosystem is more on the retail order flow side. It's not on the sort of institutional market making side. And it's so expensive to go, you know, like all the D2C businesses have learned recently, it's very expensive to go acquire customers. So 
we have decided to sort of, we have a few other market makers on our platform, but we're by far, you know, head and shoulders, the major platform. And the money that you can make, we're trading margins two, three, four percent, which is in sports betting as tight as it gets. And, you know, but compared to the financial markets, to your point earlier, it's like tons of money. If you're making 200 bips every time you place a trade and, and the other nice thing is you're making 200 bips and it settles within three hours, four hours, you know, or, where in finance, you make 200 bips and maybe it's over like a month or something, which would be a great trade. So we have found that going it alone has been better for us. And like I said, I go back and forth on that. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So I'm curious when the other market maker comes in to your platform, like what you think about that? Do you have privileged information on the exchange and sport trade? Not really. And actually, to get into more detail, we do not have privileged information in real time. We don't know who we're, who we're interacting with anything like this. We do have the ability to see a unique anonymized customer ID one day afterwards. So we can kind of know who the sharps are, you know, kind of debugging purposes or if we think like, hey, I think we might have done something we didn't want to do. And then we can go the next day and say, hey, customers, we think that knows what they're doing. Was that the one that got us? We can do that. But in real time, we don't have any ability to customer differentiate and say like, oh yeah, that was this guy. Therefore, we're, we're going to change our price or not change our price. You might have a, a very unique perspective because of your experience in Gitco and, and BATS and, and whatnot, market making those tight margins. But what I've found in sports betting is that there are very, very, very few market making firms, you know, probably to the point you, you could count them on one hand, maybe two hands. And one of the big reasons we don't have market makers on our platform is because when I created the exchange and went looking for market makers, there weren't any 14, 15. I mean, there were a few. There's one called Betting Promotion, which I don't think exists anymore. There's a company called TouchBet, which the owner is the one who went on and acquired Pinnacle. So there's like a handful of market makers, but nobody really that's like a two-sided quote is kind of a unheard of concept in sports betting. And most of the betting syndicates, you know, the smart money pro punters are just price takers. They're waiting for the bookmaker to fuck up the price and just slam them as hard as they can, where they're not interested in sort of breadth and volume and all those kinds of things. So I'm curious, like, you know, I hadn't heard about you guys until probably about a year ago. Like, I don't think there's very many market making firms out there. And I think partially because you have to trade, I, I don't know how many different markets that you have in sport trade, but, you know, on markets there's 50,000 contracts and there's some correlations between some of those contracts. So they're not all need to be priced independently, but that's a huge surface area for needing to fight information asymmetry and adverse selection. Yeah, it really is. I'll respond to that just kind of talking through the, the parallel with the financial industry. You see that same split, like say Chicago style prop trading firms where, you know, some of them focus on the market making, some of them focus on the removing, you know, it's not just the people with long-term opinions that remove. Sometimes it's just people with you just alpha signals from the last, you know, what's been going on in the last few milliseconds will will remove. Us coming from Getco, our philosophy and the way we, you know, always maximize profit was the market making. And it was the, let's just be the most dominant, you know, market share on any venue we trade at. And we're just confident we have software that deals with the fact that there, of course, there's, there's selection bias working against you. That's just part of the game. And we're just going to develop software that's nimble enough to profit maximize to do that. I mean, the market has to find some kind of equilibrium where it is profitable to market make. And, and you know, if, if we have the best and most nimble software, we'll, we'll be in the position to do that. So when I joined Getco, Getco had already kind of made that philosophical decision. So that was my experience as a sports better prior to that had or on the being a better, I mean, you know, market taker. 
but for for us, it's just it's just it was just the natural way to trade, and in in some ways, people almost envision algorithmic trading firms of, of of like you know like oh I bet you guys have a great model for the game, but have you guys heard of this concept of selection bias? And you know our philosophy there is just like of, of course we have we know that's part of the game. Our whole point is to to deal with software nimble enough to do it. I mean when you want to quote on 50,000 markets, which you do these days with all the customers getting interested in player props and weird correlations and all that stuff. What you're developing is not so much something that has like particularly strong opinions on particular events. It's more like you're just dealing with software, dealing with the process of building software that's versatile enough to respect the fact that you're going against sharps that are coming at you from all these angles and you're going to figure out the best way to trade despite that. So riffing on that Gitco idea, like we're going to fucking go for it and market make everything. So out of curiosity, just to sort of push back on what you're saying a little bit, curious to get your thoughts. Betfair, I would say, has really, generally speaking, I think Betfair has failed to live up its potential because the liquidity on it's really bad. And I say that as running an exchange when we have less good liquidity than Betfair. So, you know, I'm not saying we're better than them. But I think from a financial perspective or from a what's possible perspective, the liquidity in Betfair is very, very, very poor. So like as an argument, say you had an operation set up in Ireland. Why didn't you say like we're going to stand up? We're going to be Betfair's number one market maker. We're going to make sure every market has a great price. Why not start there rather than starting with an exchange that's effectively starting from zero in New Jersey? Well, we definitely wanted to do both. And I think the limiting factor is just the amount of time in the day. And what you just laid out there is something I would be incredibly excited to do. And to be more blunt, something I intend to do someday. I mean, I think we've always we've always felt that way as a company. I think we really felt like that was going to be our emphasis after kind of going through the process of launching with Sport Trade. It's just like, let's put the European liquidity in a, in a better spot too. But I think what we saw is there's just demand for services like what we can provide from some of the U.S. providers. And we just realized, you know what, strategically, I think that based on timing, that's what makes sense to to really throw ourselves into in the near future. But I think we're all very excited about the type of thing that you throw out there, which is just, you know, bringing more more liquidity to, to places like soccer and even these very established markets like horse racing and stuff. There is room for more from a market making perspective and more time in the day. I'd, I'd love to be doing it right now with the team, but I, I think we will get to it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a problem I've been working on for, I don't know, 13, 14 years now. So it's I guess it's not as easy as it intellectually seems, but it kind of blows my mind that somebody hasn't come along, ourselves included, and properly market-made Betfair and the other exchanges to have real liquidity. Um, it's possible that it's not possible, you know, because of adverse selection, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's too many systemic things that keep somebody from properly market-making an exchange. But to me, it kind of blows my mind that it hasn't happened, so... If anything, I want one of these exchanges to figure out proper liquidity in sports betting so we can test that theory and put that to bed. So we'll see what happens. I guess we were talking about why Pinnacle didn't succeed. Like, I would say that a lot of the big success stories, I think, made money in illegal markets. That's kind of a big story that hasn't been told very much. But Bet365, you know, prints money. They've made the lion's share of their money in China, which I would argue uh, should be sanctioned and probably prosecuted the fact that they've who knows how many hundreds of millions or billions of dollars they've made in China. So there's all this sort of like illegal, you know, quote unquote, illegal competition that I think happens in the sports betting, which kind of dictates some of the winners and losers. I also think a lot of the regulation, as well-intentioned as it is, makes it very hard for operators. Like it hasn't happened quite yet in the U.S., but it will. Uh, in the U.K., they're kind of expecting the operators to be like financial police. You have to do proper AML and KYC 
due diligence on customers. And it's really onerous, very expensive. It turns a lot of people off. And I had a guy joke, not joke to me, like tell me that he had to do less paperwork to buy his house than he did to bet in markets. And a lot of these things are sort of making it harder for operators to kind of get to scale and all these kinds of things. So there's there's some systemic stuff that I think keeps from liquidity pooling in improper places. But that's my hope. That's why I'm in sports betting. That's why I left finance, because I wanted to bring financial technology to sports betting. And also the idea of prediction markets, I think, is we've just scratched the surface on it. Now, I don't think there's necessarily money in prediction markets, but I think, you know, instead of reading up the New York Times and trying to guess what the editor of the New York Times is trying to say about the future, I think a a prediction market, a betting market on what's going to happen in the future is the right way to go. I think in, in many ways, you know, sports betting is just so well set up for just functioning e- efficient markets in a way that, that may not totally extend to the prediction markets. I mean, you, I think you mentioned earlier just the way that the things are settled right away. And you have this process of creating a probability of somebody winning a, a, a basketball game. If it's good, it's not just that like, oh, over time you'll get more money and bad, you'll, you'll lose money. It's like that happens really fast because there's just constantly new game and you have to necessarily have an HFT style model where you're trying to trade in and out. Even if you take positions, well, they still play the game and you either take the money or you don't. So there's that feedback process that's really, really fast. Whereas, you know, betting on like presidential elections or something like that, it's just, it's so slow just being like, Hey, I'm good. I have signal at predicting who's going to be the next president. Like, how do you really go through that process of the people who are right about their abilities are going to get more and bet more than the people who are wrong bet bet less. And then not to mention, especially for political type of markets, you have somebody who might say that like, hey, I have some money I want to throw into this market or, or into affecting outcomes. I think an efficient use of my money is to just manipulate the uh, prediction market and have people talking about like how this price is differently until you have an insane amount of liquidity, probably more than you do now that becomes kind of interesting. I don't know if you traded the last presidential election, but it was insane that A, Betfair kept the market open, which I think was unethical, but B, that it was trading at, you know, I want to say Biden to win at 91%, like two, three, four days after. Yeah, which was basically free money. Right, after he had won. Well, I, I think the fascinating thing about that was like, what do you do if you're Betfair? It's just like, you, you know, you haven't declared it over, so therefore... What is it going to take for you to declare it's over? It's it's just like once they didn't settle it right away, it almost became this just arbitrary thing of like, when are they going to settle it? Well, I think if they wanted to wait, if they wanted to wait for certainty, they could have just halted the market and not settled it. So that would have been the ethical right thing to do. We ended up settling it really fast because we thought that the result was clear within, I don't know, 12 hours of the polls closing. But I thought it was so bad that they kept it open because it played into that narrative that the election is not certain. Yeah. And and I know th- this is something where I think you've probably spent, you know, orders of magnitude more time paying attention than I did. But I was I was really paying some attention and I didn't I didn't understand. Like, where was that Trump money coming from? I didn't I didn't really get it. Yeah, I didn't get um, it either. Who do you like for this election? I just don't know that I have a strong opinion. I think there has generally been a little bit of a just like this inherent bias in in political prediction markets where stuff that's priced around 70 or 80 percent is typically a little closer to 100 percent so i think that that same bias exists i actually haven't looked in the last few weeks but assuming that the probability of biden or trump is only adding up to 70 or 80 percent which you know a couple months ago was the case i think that's underpriced 
I don't really know enough to go out on a limb more than that. So right now on Smarkus, Trump's 44%, Joe Biden's 35%. Okay, so 779 combined. I think that's low, although I don't know. Maybe we should look at the actuarial tables of these guys still being alive in, in November. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that. So like, let's say Joe Biden's going to live to, I guess, nine. what is he, 82? He's 82, 81? I don't know. Yeah, some, somewhere around there. So, like, let's say his life expectancy is 90. I guess there's a 10% chance he dies in a given year if it's if there's a... Yeah, but if he's no kind of major issues at the moment, it, it's, it's probably a lot lower than that 10%. So it's, it probably isn't enough to really change the probabilities around too much. So that was maybe more of a, a flippant comment. But I, I do feel like my gut feeling is that just you kind of just bet all the 1.07s on political markets at Betfair over the years, and, and that's a moneymaker. Well, it's a moneymaker except for the fact that you're tying up your money for so long, but just, you know, which is a, maybe another problem with the prediction markets. Also, it brings up the cliche that strategy works until it doesn't. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah, they're all, you know, picking up pennies in front of, you know, on the train track type of thing. Oh, man, it's not, I can't believe Donald Trump's still, like, the leading candidate for the Republican Party just shows what a crazy country the U.S. is. Like, as an observer and market maker for a long time, like, do you, like, I don't know how much you've had chance to interact with markets, but are there things that you think we made mistakes on or things that we we should have done differently? No, I mean, I, I would certainly, you know, love to make markets there, but I, that doesn't mean that I do not understand your uh, your decision to, to keep things in-house. So I, I can't give you serious pushback in terms of, like, you know, telling you, you you made a mistake on that point. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's obviously, you know, we share... The, vision that you guys do about, you know, competitive pricing being a bigger deal than it is right now. I'm pretty optimistic about firms like ours and yours being able to make it a dent. I think what you have to concede is like, it's just not going to be this thing where it turns into a financial market and 100% of, of customers are shopping around for price. I just think it can get a lot higher than it is right now. I mean, pe- people notice these things and maybe I'm drifting from your original question, but just to maybe reinforce in that point, I, I think the way I'd frame it is, a lot of these people who are new to sports betting and driving a lot of the profits right now, they, they might not have any idea what's going on. But if you go to hang out with the grizzled old veterans at a Vegas sports book, I mean, they'll make fun of you if you didn't get the best price on something. So um, I think over time, customers do learn. And I think some of what you're seeing as slow uptake is being driven by just how new the U.S. market is and how many just truly rookie customers are. And maybe just the fact that a lot of the the, the people who kind of do know to show, you know, care about price and, and stuff are shopping around still on the offshores. They're not so much the one that signed up on day one for the, for the legals. Fair enough. You said DL trading is getting into the B2B business. What, what are you trying to do on that side of things? Yeah, I just think that the type of thing we do, which is, you know, come up with a price for, for kind of anything, but increasingly complex products like same game parlays. I mean, pricing a same game parlay, I think, is the difficulty of it is probably being covered up by how much margin these guys are charging, but it's a really complex thing to deal with and not to mention managing the risk of just you have customers who are going to want to bet on stuff happening as, as opposed to stuff not happening. We just think that our whole way of thinking about markets, thinking about like, okay, let's let's look around. What do we believe based on our fundamental beliefs about this game? How much do we change those beliefs based on what the market's telling us? Which markets do we expect to be more efficient and more real-time than others? And how do the correlations all, all work? Like, like solving for that simultaneously is very, very complex. And we decided to just take it on to build out a product that showcases what, what, what we can do. Because I think the general concepts of having a model, but 
learning from the market and handling that all at the same time, it extends to, to stuff like same game parlays. So we definitely hear from the operators that they're not completely satisfied with the current B2B offerings. And we felt like we'd really built the infrastructure for, and, you know, kind of inadvertently as, as a part in support of prop trading to be able to offer some really good stuff there. So when I when I said there's not that many market makers, I on the other hand, there's tons and tons of like white label B2B providers and ones that will do pricing, especially, you know, not especially, but there are providers that will do um, same game parlay pricing. So what are you going to do that's better? Are you going to have better pricing, a wider offering, faster, blah, blah, blah? Or is it just sort of like throwing it in the mix of the people of choice? Like, what, are you going to do anything that's different than the existing providers? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you made three points. I think the third one, the speed is, is not so much an issue because this is, for the moment, it's 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 really a, a pregame product that may change over the years, but but for now, it's it's more of a pregame product, so the speed is not really a thing. But I think the, the more precise pricing and more offerings, we can just see that the thing we've developed in house, there are things we offer that that are not being offered by the big guys. And I think that just allows you to be nimble and you can take advantage of that in a number of different ways. One is you just give yourself more breadth of offering. One is you do try to compete on price. And one is you can be just a little more stubborn and and, and act a little less scared about like, oh no, somebody's betting this, we got to take it down. It's most of what you said with the exception of speed, which unlike the in-game trading, it's not really a speed game, right? Do you have an example of something you price that nobody else prices? I would hesitate to say nobody, but I just, one thing that I just happened to be looking at right before this call is, you know, we offer rushing attempts. And as part of our, that just happens to be an example that's at the top of my mind. But, you know, you go to some of these bigger sports books, maybe not all of them, but, but multiple ones. They'll offer attempts, rushing attempts. You can bet over or under, but you try to throw that in a same game parlay and they won't let you do it. Look at their hockey pricing. I don't think they know which guys play on the same lines as each other. And I think they cover it up by just saying like, well, I don't know, guys, we got to be scared of all possible correlations because we can't rule out the fact that this guy's assists are going to be correlated with that guy's goals. So we're just going to have to offer you a terrible price on the parlay. Got it. Cool. Before I let you go, what do you want to be when you grow up? There's no next chapter. This is what I'm in discussions. I always go to sports analogies. So my mind goes to, you know, what pro athlete's career would I describe my retirement trajectory off of? And, and, and my mind goes to Ricky Henderson, who once he retired from the MLB, he started playing in independent leagues and just say, all right, I guess I am retired as an MLB player, but I still want to play baseball. So I think if I were 20, 20 years from now and done doing this, well, I'm still going to screw around in this world as a hobby. So Favorite sports movie? This is a terrible answer, but I've, I've never liked sports movies. And I think it's because I'm just such a nerd that I'm just like, you know, you're trying to find lessons from sports and it's just, it's all about probability. You just play the game and sometimes somebody wins and somebody doesn't win. Isn't that Moneyball? Isn't that uh, the plot of Moneyball? Yeah, I, I guess so. But then the Moneyball, I get all. Yeah, I guess I guess Moneyball. But I'm, I've never been a sports n- movie guy for extremely nerdy reasons. You're more of a May December kind of guy. I guess. Well, <laughs> I have to. I, I have to admit, I did watch it, but I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, David, thank you very much for stopping by, and best of luck. All right. Same to you. Thanks a lot. Bye. The Business of Betting podcast is presented by Optimo, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Since 2012, Optimo has served iGaming operators from startups to industry leaders. Today, four out of the top five U.S. operators personalize player experiences with Optimo. 
iGaming operators know their growth journey begins and continues with Optimo, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Visit Optimo at ICE and mention you listen to this episode to receive an Amazon gift card.